Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. I'm Jason Keen. And I'm Andrew Poitens, and this is Go Time. Time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Go Time. Uh, so today's episode is number 61. On the show today, your hosts are myself, Eric St. Martin. Uh, Carlicia Pinto is also here. Hello. And Brian Kettleson, who is half alive, half dead. Half dead. <laughs> and our, our special guest for today, we actually have two um, uh, both working on Cloud Foundry is Jason Keen and Andrew Poydent. Hey, hey. Uh, so I guess maybe give a little bit of background of because of, Pivotal and Cloud Foundry kind of do a lot of steps. So do you want to kind of give maybe a little bit of background about yourselves and the particular areas within Cloud Foundry that you are focused? Oh, uh, yeah. So I joined Pivotal about two years ago now, uh, and I work uh, ex- explicitly on Cloud Foundry. Um, uh, Cloud Foundry, for people who don't know, is a enterprise platform as a service, um, similar in style to a Heroku, um, but it's on-prem. Uh, you can also run it in the cloud, um, on Google or AWS or wherever. Um, so yeah, that's like kind of what Cloud Foundry is all about. Uh, yeah, I joined over three years ago uh, and started on Loggerator, which is the log system for Cloud Foundry, where if you have an application running in Cloud Foundry, your standard out and standard error could be gathered and shipped off to you as a developer. And that's then morphed into also a like a DevOps perception too, where all the different VMs and stuff are shipping their logs as well and starting to ship metrics as well so that you can have operators maintain this massive deployment that involves you know hundreds, hundreds of VMs. And just for like a separation of voices, that was Jason who spoke yeah. first and Andrew second, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Loggergator is written in Go? Yeah. So I would say a, a good majority of components in the Cloud Foundry system are implemented in Go now. Um, Cloud Foundry has a kind of a history of uh, Ruby, um, but it went through like multiple uh, you know, transitions where components are kind of incrementally rewritten in Go. So our uh, kind of load balancer reverse proxy uh, a component is uh, called the Go router, and it's, of course, implemented in Go. Locker Gator is fully implemented in Go. Uh, our runtime is called Diego. Uh, naturally, that's implemented in Go as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, components in Cloud Foundry that are, are Go. What led to the moving from Ruby to Go? Uh, I totally wasn't part of the company back then, but... Uh, I don't know, do you have any context? Yeah, uh, so we originally inherited, we as in Pivotal, inherited Cloud Foundry uh, from VMware. And VMware had done everything in Ruby. Uh, and the DA, which was the droplet execution agent, was written in Ruby. And it was essentially a giant black box of magic. 
where everything was written and with metaprogramming and you know standard Ruby. Um, and so we wanted to add quite a bit of functionality, including like speed and being able to implement that in Ruby became insurmountable. There were lots of security concerns. There were orchestration problems. And so uh, some developers decided, hey, this would be a great opportunity to rewrite this in a way that would actually be maintainable. Um, and Go was picked because of its simplicity. And the, you know, so DEA Go, which is Diego, uh, was born. And it's a massively distributed team. It's got contributors all across the country. Um, I think there's people in Europe contributing to it. And it lends itself to that because it was written in Go. And people can quickly jump in, gather contacts in the part they need to, and uh, start contributing. Nice. I would love to talk more about that, actually. What, what makes you say that, uh, well, that's what I might take on it anyway. My take on what you just said is that because the system is written Go, it lends itself well for a distribute, distributed team to work on. Uh, what, what makes you say that? Yeah, um, so, some of the kind of uh, insights I have is that it seems like uh, engineers, no matter what their background is, whether it's a dynamic language or a statically typed language like uh, C Sharp or Java, uh, they, they really feel comfortable in Go. Go is kind of like the... Uh, the subset of it's it's such a small language that it the subset of like the syntax and what is there uh is kind of like approachable by many different uh engineers from many different languages that's something i kind of noticed we have people on our teams that have backgrounds in java people on our teams that have backgrounds in ruby or python uh, and they they're able to pick up go real fast the counterpoint like or counterexample um would be I, I worked on a Java project for Cloud Foundry, and we had several frameworks. And when you joined the team, you had to get up to speed first with all the frameworks, and then which components use what frameworks where. And so before mm. you could even be successful in contributing, you had to kind of gather all this intimate knowledge about where you wanted to contribute and how that framework interacted with what you were going to do. Uh, with Go, since a lot of these things aren't written in frameworks, you can simply drop in, look at the tests that were written, um, everything is well tested, and get enough context with what you need and add your addition, make the PR, see that the test pass, um, and feel confident that what you actually added will get merged and will be correct. Um, and so like that was a very great experience and it's enabled a pretty large community across the globe to help us grow Cloud Foundry. There is something we take for granted, isn't it? That we don't usually use a framework and we don't have that extra thing to learn. Even though, for example, people who come from uh, the Ruby on Rails background, when people learned Ruby, they learned Ruby via learning Rails. That their exposure to Rails was what exposed them to Ruby. And But if you go a bit further back and you work with Java, or even PHP has a different different, uh, different frameworks. You really have a bunch of options, and who knows what project's going to use what? And we don't have to go through that. It lends itself to, I think, enabling people to quickly help 
without all this extra overhead. And we're not switching between frameworks all the time, much like you could maybe on a JavaScript project. Mm -hmm. Also, the I mean, the, the standard library is uh, very high quality and it's almost intuitive. Like once you learn one standard library package, like the kind of conventions and like uh, intuition you develop from learning that package translates into most of the other packages in the standard library. So that also helps with like getting people up to speed. So let's continue on these threads. And I'm curious to know for, uh, uh, what's it called? Laggregator. Mm -hmm. Do you, make use of an external package or are you doing everything just use mostly using the standard library do you use an external package that has to do with uh logging so we use grpc very heavily for mm -hmm. our transport mm -hmm. um but we've kind of homegrown the like metrics and logging concept so we have something called envelopes which are actually protocol buffer messages that encompass a log message as like textual information or a counter event or a gauge metric. And so we enable like components or applications that can then send these things. And the application is at the moment tied strictly to standard out, standard error. Uh, and then those things get packaged up into these protocol buffer messages. Um, but we're not actually using anything off the shelf per se. Um, in fact, like Logrator was incepted, I believe in 2013. Yeah. And so it's pretty old and a lot of our, you know, stuff around that has to kind of deal with the fact that we have this very old Go project where Go wasn't as heavily adopted back then. And there were mm -hmm. a lot less tools available to us. And we had to kind of think about how would Go want to approach this. And, and in fact, we were at that point integrating only with the DEA, which again was written in Ruby. Um, so we kind of had to make these interfaces clean that could be consumed and uh, used for many different languages. GRPC is a great reason to do that. Exactly. I was going to ask, do you find yourself having to rewrite stuff that you wrote way, way back in Go? Yeah, we... Um... I would say a large portion of the Go or the Largator Go uh, source code has been at least heavily modified, if not rewritten at this point. Um, it's it's an incremental approach that we've had over the past two years. You know, as a uh, need is put on us from a product perspective or an engineering perspective, like we then uh, decompose what's there and like try to you know bring new ideas uh, and new implementations like into the project. And uh, we've done that with several of the components. Um, so yeah, I would say we've done a, a good amount of rewriting, uh, but it's it's rewriting that's informed by a lot of different uh, you know variables. It's not just you know engineers wanting to rewrite something. Right. Mm -hmm. And these variables, can you give us an idea? Because it's very interesting to talk to somebody who has been working with the uh, one particular project for such a, so many years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're always trying to take insights for people who are listening that they can pay attention to and maybe use in their own work. So I'm curious to know what sort of variables, what sort of ideas are guiding rewrites, because obviously you're saying you're not just refactoring for, for refactoring's sake, which is great. Yeah, I guess uh, 
I, I could give like one of the examples of, of something that we've written is uh, we, we switched over to using gRPC is about a little over a year and a half ago. Uh, and that uh, was kind of motivated from an engineering perspective. Like we wanted to reduce the cost of us maintaining our own custom messaging. So previous to using gRPC, we had our own uh, custom TCP framing and TCP batching and UDP uh, code for, for managing, uh, you know, messages. Uh, we also use Gorilla WebSockets uh, and uh, we had this hodgepodge of different transports. So from an engineering perspective, we wanted to do this rewrite. And uh, what kind of motivated that was uh, security uh, was one of the ma major mo motivating factors. Um, so gRPC gives us a mutual auth TLS, which is a, a awesome feature to have uh, for doing uh, you know, secure communication between different components. And we get that as a feature. And uh, as, as part of that, we get to also kind of uh, reduce some of the technical debt on the project and do a rewrite of our, our message transport. Very cool. One of the other big drivers has been the growth of Cloud Foundry. Um, before Cloud Foundry probably was only handling a few dozen apps at a time. And now you have larger installations of Cloud Foundry that have upwards of like 250,000 app instances running, um, which means all those apps are trying to stream data through Loggerator. And we noticed that some of our previous code just wasn't up to the task. And so as these larger deployments have come out, we wanted to be able to handle all that log load. Um, and so we've had to invent a few things around that and better understand what it meant to handle that many messages a second and large dynamic payloads um, and like just many, many consumers that are trying to get all those payloads. So a lot of stuff has just been slowly vetted out by having Loggerator installed in so many different uh, companies' data centers. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a, a really interesting thing. Like, so what are some areas that you ran into, like uh, you kind of alluded to, like where you had to invent some things to solve for problems that you didn't experience um, without having that additional scale? I'd be really interested to hear about kind of some of those things that you ran into and the things that you had to create to work around um, those issues. So the, the big one we ran to first was LogRader has an agreement uh, with app developers that when you log to standard out, it won't be slow. Um, in fact, it won't push back at all. It mm -hmm. should be free. So Logger has the task of ensuring that while we do our best to push uh, messages through you know, this distributed network system, uh, we will not push back on the application. So we use channels, obviously, for distributed data. You know, Go has those, and they're great. But what we noticed was as you write to a channel, and that channel can't receive any data because there's downstream latency, we wanted to not drop the uh, new messages. We'd rather drop the old messages. So now you have some kind of complicated thing instead of just your normal, like writing to a channel with a select and a default, because those would drop the new messages. So we ended up making something called a diode, uh, which essentially was a ring buffer uh, that operated purely on atomics and would therefore prioritize new messages over old ones. And this enabled us to have buffered data, allow for network latency and recover from that, 
while ensuring we didn't push back on consumers or producers rather, and still trying to get the most amount of logs we possibly could to our consumers. So we went and ripped out a lot of channels that we previously had before um, to enable kind of like less buffering, fewer go routines per connection, and are a little less latent end to end. And this is open source, isn't it? Of course. Yeah. Um, so Cloud Foundry is an uh, open source. If you go under github.com slash Cloud Foundry, uh, all the components are Cloud Foundry are listed under there. And you'll, you'll find these libraries that we're talking about under that org as well. Uh, what, one other thing that came to mind uh, when you're mentioning like what type of, uh, you know, technical limitations that we ran into that we, we had to kind of step back and like think of like ways of getting around is uh, we, we used to use uh, WebSockets pretty heavily uh, between uh, certain components. And uh, while you can multiplex like mes multiple messages, multiple streams of messages across a single WebSocket connection, it's not typically like the typical use case. Um, and so a lot of our like legacy code that uses WebSocket uh, protocol uh, was uh, dedicating a single WebSocket and thus a single TCP connection for every single stream. And like naturally that's gonna limit your, your ability to scale. So uh, that was another like huge win that we had with gRPC. Since it uses HTTP two, uh, you get uh, you know pretty much for free multiplexing of multiple streams across a single TCP connection. Uh, so we did a little bit of work around that. Uh, we got the multiplexing for free, um, but then we also noticed that you know sending all of our streams over a single connection it actually like saturates that connection. So we uh, we created uh, kind of pools of connections and load balancers to kind of manage that, uh, so that we can have you know many streams going over many connections and just have it all work in an efficient way. Very cool. So now, are you using your new diode concept throughout other portions, or is this mainly kind of uh, limited to just uh, Loggergator? So uh, recently, we've had some downstream consumers of Loggergator start to use it. So um, uh, Google maintains a Stackdriver nozzle, which is a, a component that reads off of our, our fire hose, which is like all the data coming out of Loggergator. And uh, we're pretty aggressive about killing uh, consumers that uh, are reading slowly. Um, if we detect that you're, you're, you're not reading fast enough over a certain period of time, uh, instead of like dealing with the costs in our system, we just uh, you know, close that connection. Uh, and let you know you got to reconnect. Uh, so they were seeing a lot of these reconnect events and they were panicking on these reconnects, which is a little bit inefficient. So we uh, kind of had a conversation with them and introduced them to the diodes and uh, they've been able to use that to uh, prevent themselves from getting disconnected by the log reader system. Um, trying to think of some other projects I noticed recently adopted. There's a few closed source ones at Pivotal that use it pretty heavily. Yeah. So, but there was like another open source project recently. It doesn't come to mind, but um, yeah, it's it's mainly you know kind of Cloud Foundry ecosystem pivotal stuff so far. It's written in a way though that it certainly could be used. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah, we tried to uh, the Cloud Foundry project. Uh, uh, at least I, I speak for Lograder. Uh, Lograder hasn't had a really good history of extracting useful things for broad consumption. So uh, the diodes is like kind of one of the first projects that we started that uh, where we extracted this idea out so that, you know, other consumers can use it. Now, 
I'm reading here um, that one of your project goals is to have an opinionated log structure. So talk to us about that. So at the very least, I'm, I have never used it. So I'm guessing it's a structure, you offer structure logging. And um, why is that the best goal for this project? So we took the approach that um, there's textual logs, like an application can emit, um, just normal standard output stuff. And then there's metrics, such as counters or gauges, timers, much like you'd find in a project like Prometheus. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we decided we'll make these protocol buffer messages um, and have them be very strict about what they'll accept. And the idea would be any producer has to put those fields in there. And that would enable then the consumers of LogRadar to know what they could get. And that has enabled a lot of nice things because all of a sudden these very generic consumers can come in, such as the stack driver one, and not know very much about you know, Cloud Foundry as a whole, this massive system, and yet still can pull in and do very interesting things with the data. And so it, it's been like a nice way to document how metrics flow through LogRadar without having to dig through you know, massive amounts of readmes and go through different components as to what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and it just it enables the compiler, essentially, to do more work for you as well. You can't accidentally send some invalid protocol buffer message that will get rejected. Mm. How many fields are there? It's pretty limited. Yeah, so there's a repo called loggerator-api, which is just our .proto files that we use to generate our clients and everything off of. Uh, if you want to take a look at it, it's it's pretty conservative. Uh, we have a v2 API that we uh, started on about, let's say about a year ago. And uh, that v2 API kind of took all the lessons that we learned from previous uh, iterations and uh, kind of distilled like the the core set of things that we needed in the envelope and in the individual messages. Our hope is that we have perhaps distanced ourselves away from being specific to Cloud Foundry. Um, there's a lot of neat things happening everywhere, like, for example, Kubernetes. And what we don't want is to have the library system be so opinionated that it would only be useful within Cloud Foundry. So LogRadar is doing its best to be a distributed uh, logging and metric system for several distributed systems and not just Cloud Foundry. We had our original iteration where everything was specific to Cloud Foundry. Every metric type was something that only Cloud Foundry could ever care about. And the consumers would only ever care about Cloud Foundry. And what we noticed was other interesting distributed systems were coming out, such as Kubernetes. And LogRadar was in a technical position to where it could service these things, but we were so opinionated about Cloud Foundry, we really weren't putting ourselves like in front of that. So we decided to move our API more towards a generic place and have generic metrics with a subset of the information we previously had that would be useful, therefore, for any different number of distributed applications and enable distributed applications to use LogRadar to optimize their apps or maintain them, do DevOps work, mm -hmm. uh, and just ensure that like iterations are happening. So 
Pivotal's main focus is to enable developers to do interesting things. And so Cloud Foundry wants to enable developers to do, you know, hard, complex distributed systems and maintain them and iterate on their software quickly and have confidence that their stuff is actually working. So they need visibility in that. Now, here's kind of a, a random off-the-wall question. How complicated is a Cloud Foundry install? Is it something I could put on my laptop? Or do I have to have a minimum number of VMs to run it or a minimum number of physical nodes? Uh, it scales down pretty well. Uh, there's a, uh, a project called Bosch Deployment. So we use Bosch to manage the Cloud Foundry deployment. Um, and so you can run Bosch deployments uh, locally on your laptop. Uh, we do it on our Linux workstations here for development purposes. We'll deploy a Cloud Foundry. Uh, granted, it's a trimmed down uh, version of Cloud Foundry. Uh, you know, it's not uh, completely highly available, um, but you can run that on your laptop uh, as long as it can run, you know, a decent sized VM. Yeah, there's a project that's called Bosch Lite. Yeah. Which essentially, I mean, I don't think it's even called that anymore, but we still well, call it. Bosch Deployment is like the the new like project name for it. Right. Um, and they have a, a virtual box uh, kind of uh, CPI for that. So right. CPI is a, a cloud provider interface, which is a, a Bosch term for basically how Bosch speaks to uh, you know, a cloud API. I, I don't know why like I just caught that. Like, uh, like you're saying Bosch. But like when you say it with deployment, it just comes. It sounds to me like botched deployment, and I kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never heard that. That's yeah, perfect. That's funny. <laughs> I think Bosch was actually supposed to be, and I think we all have our like giggle and opinion about it. But it was supposed to be Borg, Google's Borg plus plus. So it's like R plus is a uh, S, and G plus is a H. So yeah, yeah it, Bosch. It was. Uh, yeah. It was conceived in a time when, uh, like, this is well before like containers were were popular or even known about generally. Um, so yeah, it, it operates more on a, a VM type con concept. So it's good for doing uh, deployments. It's similar in, in character to maybe like a Terraform, but it also has some like monitoring uh, abilities. It has an agent that runs on all the VMs. It manages your stem cells, which are the images that uh, the VMs boot up with uh, for security reasons and. Uh, manages the packaging of the software that gets installed onto the VM. So, um, yeah. It's a handy tool. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly handy. Now, for again, for uh, someone who have been working with this project for such a long time, uh, I would like to ask the question, if Go had generics, would it be more useful to you? Do you do you miss not having that, or do you get by without it? Would you, would you recommend the external library at it? Yeah, this, this seems kind of like a trolley question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, like I, I kind of have the opinion that uh, Go uh, had generics and make implementing some of the the data structures that we we've exposed, like, for instance, the diodes, uh, like much much more natural. Um, uh, I don't know what your opinion is. Yeah, we kind of get around it. So, for example, the diodes operate on unsafe pointers. But when we bring it into projects, we immediately make a wrapper around it mm -hmm. with the actual type that we want to be in the diode. So that way we get the benefit of the compiler. But that's something that is kind of hand-rolling, maybe like a C++ template or something. Yeah, and the, the wrappers are... 
for like something like diodes, they're easy to generate, just kind of boilerplate code. Um, right. So you can just go generate to generate those. Um, so, I mean, I, like Andrew said, we, we kind of worked around it. Um, I'm, I'm happy with kind of the pattern that we've, we've adopted uh, to make our, our stuff generally usable. Um, but it does mean that you have to use things like empty interface and unsafe pointer. Um, but we kind of contain them in, the, in a small box so that, you know, it doesn't bleed out into the rest of your, your program. And I think that's been really key for us, again, on like this massively distributed team. If I think if you, if you let your unsafe pointers or empty interfaces leak too far, again, if someone were to just drop in the middle of your code base and try to help, they wouldn't have the compiler helping them there. Like, what is this empty interface? What is it supposed mm -hmm. to represent? And like supposed to know casting of unsafe pointers is not always intuitive. And uh, we've had situations in the past where, uh, you know, sometimes like uh, putting an extra asterisk, the compiler doesn't tell you, hey, this is dereferencing something you shouldn't dereference. Right. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you make a proposal to the Go team? Uh, to... Implementing generics is uh, well beyond my, my, my expertise. <laughs> <laughs> no, because the. Because there were soliciting use cases, not not a proposal for how to implement, oh, okay. but a proposal like here's my here's my use case. Because they were soliciting it. I don't know if you know. Yeah, uh, I, think, I wasn't aware of that. I think before kind of approaching a solution or something, they really kind of wanted to be well aware of the types of situations that people were looking to use uh, generics. Sounds like yeah. you guys have a good use case. Yeah, we could throw it out there. Yeah, go to type stuff. Hmm. That's my go-to complaint <laughs> about Go. I don't want generics, just for the record. I like my Go readable, and I think generics will make it worse. Coming from a C++ background, I get nervous. Yeah. To have nightmares <laughs> when I have something where, like, boost messed up. Messed and angle brackets. Yes, pages yep. of compiler errors. Uh I think it could potentially make life easier for 20% of the users and harder for 80%. So yeah. I'm not crazy about it either. Yeah, I'm not saying that um, there aren't use cases for it, particularly use cases that would be much easier um, with it, but I don't find working around it um, overly difficult. But maybe I don't work in the spaces where it would be the most useful. So I, I'm not against it, but I'm not like the language is broken without it. Yeah, that's why I like the idea that uh, I like the fact that they were soliciting use cases so they can get everything together and just make a decision. Because <laughs> I don't know every 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 single project out there, right? I mean, we don't know. Yeah, I'd uh, caution like listeners uh, if you are gonna use like empty interface or some of these other generic types uh, to approach it in a similar way that kind of we approach it, contain it within a, a small area of your code base so it doesn't bleed out to the rest of your system. Um, I, I can drop a link in the uh, show notes for uh, like how we approached it um, just so that people can kind of get a feel for what we've done. That'd be awesome. Yeah, we've had, we made a few, few libraries and I think we've run into this a few times where it's like, I guess we make it an empty interface and then, try to do our best to make sure we don't use it as that. But again, like I, it's so easy to work around. I don't think that it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be driven to like say that yeah, the language is broken. I'd agree with that. And mm -hmm. 
it lends itself to be. Fixed. I'm definitely like appreciative of the consideration that the the core team has when it comes to generics, because um, like like you're saying, like we don't want to be in a situation where, uh, you know, eighty percent of the engineers are having to deal with this frustration of like massive compiler errors that are nonsensical, um, just to serve like a, a niche, you know, twenty percent. And the ways to work around it are kind of fun too. Um, like Brian here is like the king of code generation. <laughs> we can use some of that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we have one library that does its best to generate a tree traverser for you, which was a very interesting problem, but generating code is hard. Yeah. Especially like code that like mortals can read. Yeah. <laughs> That's what makes it fun. It's like leveling up your your code skills. When you get into yeah code generation that's generating code that's generating code then you're hardcore <laughs> <laughs> and you know you made it to next level yeah uh and that might be too too uh too many levels deep for me <laughs> it's like wait so does this code generate the the generation code or the generated code <laughs> generates itself yeah it's like a coin that just generates itself somewhere <laughs> in the middle there I guess it's not new too. You've got like GCC and stuff that bootstraps itself, right? Or it compiles itself to compile itself. Right. It's insane. So that the new version of GCC's compiler has the optimizations that came with the new version of GCC. It's just kind of funny. So um, you mentioned um, in the docs and stuff too, uh, gRPC that you, you guys are using that and kind of went through some experiments with um, other forms of messaging. Uh, how, how long ago did you land on gRPC? Um, so, yeah, we picked up gRPC shortly after 1.0 of gRPC Go uh, was announced. Uh, it was in the news, and we're like, oh, maybe this will serve our use case. Previous to that, we were kind of looking at uh, 0MQ, NanoMessage, Mangos, those type of messaging frameworks. Um, what really like sold us on gRPC Go? Well, it was a, like a multitude of things, um, but the fact that there was a really solid native implementation in Go uh, was a big win. We didn't have to use C Go to talk to some C library to do our messaging. Um, again, like we kind of started playing around, and we noticed how easy it was to get mutual off TLS like off the ground. Uh, it's really really simple uh, API that they have. Uh, you just dial up and provide your your certs and keys and everything just just works um previous to that we were kind of like hand rolling some of our own mutual tls and while the tls library and standard library is is, is pretty solid um there's some like kind of gotchas and rough edges so grpc kind of handles all that for you um uh, we, we're kind of already using protobufs so uh, it was a natural fit um you know you uh, with grpc you generate all the clients for all the different languages uh, that it supports so that was like a huge win. We wouldn't have to maintain a lot of clients. Um, they would just be generated. And uh, I think that's about it. There's some uh, other reasons why we kind of adopted it. Yeah, it's also really good at upgrade paths. So yeah. Cloud Foundry has to be HA, like above all things. Um, so upgrade paths are always something that we're considering. Every change we make, we'll talk about how will this upgrade from a previous version? How long can we keep this thing? before we can deprecate it or, or how long we have to keep this thing before we can deprecate it. And gRPC does such a solid job at upgrading, even when it has its own 
updates it does it you know it considers that as well um and it had the kind of that backing which was huge mm-hmm. i mean that that is something that you when you're using grpc and, and protobuf for that matter you kind of have to consider like your upgrade paths uh it's something that you have to spend some time like considering it's not something you get for free um but it definitely like provides a clear path for you um and it's something that you can tell the people who created grpc and, and protobuf it's something that they are concerned about uh, having these smooth upgrade paths right because when you get to like the the actual protocol that things are, are communicating over it's extremely hard to change it because then everything basically has to come down and back up at the same time, unless there's kind of like well thought out um, upgrade paths. Right. Yeah, that's not a thing in Cloud Foundry. We have Lograder has components, an agent that runs on every single VM in Cloud Foundry. So for us, like we have, like there's customers that have deploys that go for days because mm-hmm. they're rolling so many VMs. So your VM that rolled, you know, from the beginning has to still be compatible. With the servers that won't get rolled for a couple more days type of thing so that's crazy multi-day yeah. deployments yeah unfortunately uh yeah there are some uh war, war stories of multi-day <laughs> deployments with massive you know cloud foundry deployments yeah, just enormous data center upgrades yeah. and stuff i feel like i've gotten spoiled <laughs> i was trying to no. deploy a, a kubernetes cluster with single command the other day and i was i was getting frustrated it was taking minutes <laughs> <laughs> this deploy took eight minutes it's a bug <laughs> yeah um i mean some operation teams uh kind of appreciate the slow methodical approach um they're not uh, as uh, impatient as us developers. So um, they prefer a stable system that upgrades cleanly and without like, you know, incident than a system that upgrades quickly with massive incidents. So, um, yeah. Operations people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare they want stability? It's tricky. We could have like a crazy show if we just had an ops person on and we just fight <laughs> fight me <laughs> run uh, fast break break things <laughs> that would no. be the title of our show yeah, it's amazing that there's still kind of uh two camps like even with devops kind of uh being a thing there's still uh people kind of fall within two camps and uh uh it's kind of it, the question that i always like ask people is if you have a production system that has like say a memory leak and uh restarting the process will fix the problem but you will lose all like forensic evidence in order to debug the issue uh what do you do do you restart the process and resolve the issue or do you poke around and get you know heap dumps and stuff like that um and usually like you'll fall within one of the two camps either you'll be like no we need to debug this or no we need to uh restart it and bring up time Back up, so. Well, I think you left out what impact it's having on the customer too. Yeah, obviously there's a lot of variables there. Yeah, I mean, because if you could take the server out of rotation and let the other nodes handle it while you poke, yeah. poke at it. This is more like a, a hypothetical situation where, like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know many other people on the call have, have been in situations in prod where, uh, you know, you, you got to bring bring back the service. Uh, 
but you know, it's kind of a hypothetical situation where uh, you have to make a choice either way. <laughs> well, you, usually a lot of us developers, it's uh, we get an email that they have already restarted. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, but, but. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're instructed to go fix the problem. Yeah, you're just combing through code, <laughs> looking for anywhere that could leak memory. <laughs> Something happened in prod. We don't know what. Fix it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're still trying to find the perfect balance between ops and dev and things, right? And I think a lot of the initial motivation, at least from my standpoint, for the whole DevOps movement is to understand how your code would be deployed and to help um, help deliver your code as a full-fledged product with the tools that the operators need to support it and the documentation for how to handle these scenarios, how to figure out when it needs to be restarted, um, things like that, instead of just taking this you know, new build and being like, here, you make it live. But you know, whether, whether developers go full-fledged operations, you know, I don't know whether that's the right mix. Um, I think we're still figuring that out. It's still early, but I think it does make sense for us to have some operations knowledge. We on uh, Cloud Foundry have embraced that pretty heavily through um, Google's SRE, uh, that book they released not too long ago. Good book. And, and yeah, I yeah, still need been, to read it. It's a very like light read. Um, I got some playing time this weekend, so maybe I'll start. It, it's fantastic, though. We, we've, there's a lot of things that are common sense, but it's nice to formalize it. Mm. And then as a team, you can kind of use it as the decision maker. How yeah. should we approach this? Well, how would SRE have done it? Um, yeah, it gives us like a shared vocabulary now. So like we're referencing the same concepts um, versus before. You kind of have to build up that kind of shared vocabulary. Right. Another interesting thing that we have here at Pivotal working on Cloud Foundry is not only are we running in hundreds of different data centers, completely different configurations everywhere, but we also have our own massive um, Cloud Foundry running um, run.pivotal.io that we're like on call for. So we often will push something out there and we'll know pretty soon if what we did was a big mistake or not. Um, because our local uh, Cloud Foundry that's running this, you know, has running thousands and thousands of app instances. All of a sudden, you had a memory leak, like Jason described, and you're getting paged in the middle of the night, and you see that you have some kind of linear climb in your memory usage across the servers, and you kind of have the Cloud Ops team saying, what do you want us to do? So it's kind of always an interesting thing how quickly you can have a bad decision come back and get validated as such. Yeah, um, kind of. Speaking about like operations stuff, uh, like we're all software engineers, so we don't really kind of get get into the operations stuff very heavily. Um, we are on call for for our production environment, but uh, like recently, uh, as part of like our partnership with with Google, uh, we went through a, a CRE, which is their Customer Reliability Engineer program. Uh, we went through a review for Loggergator. And uh, there's a lot of kind of operational patterns. Uh, like some of them are things that I've heard like Kelsey Hightower speak about. It's like sympathy for your operators. Um, so they, they came to us with a, you know some of these like patterns that they wanted us to add uh, to Logger Meter. Uh, it's stuff that like we maybe have thought about tangentially uh, on, on occasion, but um, 
they really like pointed it out to us. Like these are things that you should have to have a uh, certain amount of nines of reliability. Yeah, the nines of reliability even has been really nice. How to you know how to measure success on a distributed system is kind of a tricky concept. It can seem like it's working to you, but then you know you have a different consumer that they're not getting what they expect at all. And how do you how do you kind of measure how everything's going? Yeah, and then I think you have the flip side of it, which is anytime you give somebody a metric in which to measure something, it's well, it has to be five nine. That has to be one hundred percent test coverage. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the things the CRE guys kind of pointed out really early is setting your uh, you know SLA and SLIs at at the right level. Uh, you know, you, having four or five nines is not necessarily something you should strive for. Um, you know, having a lower level of reliability gives you more flexibility in how fast you can iterate uh, and has other advantages. So it's kind of like setting the right expectations and meeting those expectations. And I think um, when you talk about reliability or security or any of those things, it's always trade-offs, right? Like you can't focus all your time and money on on all the areas. There's just there's just not enough time. You have to look at like what, what the likelihood of this failing or being um, compromised is. And then you have to look at what the impact of that happening is. And then that's how you categorize the things you spend the most time on. The, the SRE book is such a good read for that because they talk about having a budget. You're, you're, all of those nines are just digging into a budget. You've got a budget for downtime. How are you going to use it? As like a streaming service, uh, like we kind of measure things a little bit differently than a typical like request response type uh, service. Um, so we, we measure how many... Uh, how many nines we have of message reliability, which is basically how many messages we, we drop. Uh, so we don't give hard guarantees of durability or delivery. Um, so we, we want to make sure we're doing our best at that. But, uh, you know, it's something that uh, under certain situations we will drop messages. So uh, that's kind of the, one of the primary metrics that we look at for uh, our you know, quote unquote error budget. Um, you know, these aren't actually 500s that you're getting back from a server. These are just happen to be uh, missed messages and uh the, the way we we test that is we have a pretty aggressive uh like kind of black box testing of our system uh so we have various environments that are running our software and then we kind of probe it from the outside and uh ask for a specific quantity of messages and uh, based on how many we get you know that gives us our our um, amount of messages that we've lost and we run that you know, constantly on these different environments uh to to get a signal of like a message loss so I think we've got a few minutes left. Um, so we should probably jump into projects and news and free software Friday and all of that good stuff. It was kind of a quiet news week, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know about a whole lot of news. I mean, mostly like um, product releases and stuff like that, like um, Heptio, um, if you are a Kubernetes and Envoy fan, um, they just released something called Contour which basically allows you to use Envoy as the ingress controller, which is super cool. Written by the legend, Dave Cheney. Yes. Legend. He was pretty <laughs> excited about it, too. I, for, I forget that Dave Cheney is a help, too. Yeah, yeah, that was a kind of exciting couple of weeks where everybody was trying to guess where he was going. <laughs> Microsoft. <laughs> that would have been cool. The great attractor in the Go community. <laughs> Everyone's gravitating to Microsoft. 
<laughs> I hear all the cool kids are going there. <laughs> maybe maybe we can get a job there. <laughs> I'm not good enough. So uh, maybe we can keep our job there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so another cool project uh, I came across was uh, called Go TTY, which I've only played with a little bit, but it seems super cool where um, you basically can um, share your terminal, but through like uh, a web page. So everybody else kind of gets to hit a website and live view your, your terminal. Go TTY is really awesome. I've used it to back a couple projects that I wrote this spring, and there's a lot of power to it. You can pipe it through to just about anything. I've, I have mine piped through to Docker so that when somebody hit a web page, it would automatically spawn a Docker container and drop them into a shell. So you had web-based containerized shell environments for everybody using GoTTY. I didn't even realize that you had used GoTTY for that. I've touched everything, Eric. You should just accept that. <laughs> this is really cool. Very useful. Another one that um, I came across is called GERT, and I think we mentioned this before. Um, I think it might have been a little earlier on, but it seems to be um, a port of uh, the Go runtime to run directly on ARM v7 uh, system on the chips. And um, I haven't got to play with this yet, but um, maybe when I get back from traveling, I will find an ARM7 device and try to do this. It sure is looking good, though. Yeah, I mean, and they already have um, support for most of the serial protocols and things like that, um, SPI and UART. Um, I don't know whether I saw I2C supported yet, but um, that will be really interesting. Is that how you say that, I2C? I always read I2C, but because I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think people say it both ways, but I think it's technically I2C. Nice. Today I learned. <laughs> We need the the more you know. Do, do, do. <laughs> Another cool tool that uh, I came across is called GoScan, and it uh, basically scans the IPv4 subnet range and uses um, Samba and things like that to discover host names. I've actually I've been noticing more and more like security tools written in Go, which is really cool. When your worlds collide. When my worlds collide, yeah, because most of the time when I play with security tools, they're written in Python or very bad C. <laughs> that happens too. And like, isn't people that kind love... of ironic that people write bad C for security tools? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, so another cool one um, that I actually just saw today was uh, GoMatcha.io, and it seems to be a project that has bindings for Objective-C and Java so that you can write your mobile apps completely in Go. And I have not tried this yet. So if you have, please like find me and tell me whether you like it or not so that I, I uh, can build something with it. <laughs> I'll let other people be the... Uh, yeah, somebody the else can try that. We have a couple big conferences coming up this month. .go and GoForCon Brazil. I'm getting on a plane in 21 hours for .go. Is anybody here going to .go? No. Not me. Well, Brian, Brian is. He's speaking. But I didn't know if anybody else is. You, yeah, you're speaking, right? I am. 
And then we have um, the following week, or maybe it's two weeks later, uh, mid-November is GoForCom Brazil, which yeah. I know Carlicia will be at. She wouldn't miss it yeah. for the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, I live on the 14th. Nice. And the conference is that weekend. And I'm speaking. Supposedly. Oh, you are speaking. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> What's your topic? I'm going to talk about uh, certificates and TLS and Let's Encrypt. Then go, nice. of course. Oh, nice. I don't know how I did it, but I managed to sign myself up for five talks in 11 days. And I am one talk into that 11 days and already regretting the whole plan. I think it was Eric's idea. Are, are they all five different talks? They are all five different talks. Wow. Um, I was bright enough at least to write sample code for three of the talks in one repository. So I, one of the talks is on microservices, another is on open tracing, and then there's another on something else. So, so I built a bunch of microservices that had open tracing so I could at least use one group of code for several different talks. But, oh my gosh, regret. Yeah, I don't, th I don't think I could do it. Yeah, it's like an ultra marathon of coding talks. <laughs> I'll take the blame, though. You know, I wish they were all local. The hard part is that it's, you know, dot .go on, on the 6th and then uh, the women who go in Paris on the 7th or 8th and then Code Motion in Italy. Oh, so much flying. That almost sounds whiny. You know, I am really, really grateful to be able to get to do the job that I do. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> so um, one other cool thing that I came across was... Um, Actually, in NVIDIA's uh, GitHub organization is a project called NVIDIA Docker, which um, is supposed to have support for um, having containers that can leverage NVIDIA GPUs that are running on the hardware. So that will be really cool to start seeing like CUDA applications running inside containers. All right. How about some free software Friday? I'm in. Mm -hmm. So. So I'll start it off because I already whined about all of these presentations. I'm going to shout out to the present, the present tool from, from the Go team. I sure love being able to write my slides in a very light format and just typing present on the command line and, and getting good looking slides that are easy to read and easy to write. So thanks to the Go team for making the present tool. I use it for pretty much everything. Hey, can you play a video inside the, the present tool? You can, you can play videos, you can put iframes mm. in, you could do everything. And I even, I forked the present tool and in mine, you could run Docker containers and all kinds of extra <laughs> stuff. Really? That's how, that's how I roll. Hmm. Okay. Have, have you changed like the color format or anything? Cause that's the no. only thing I think that's hard with the present tool sometimes is like meetups and stuff are, are good. But like um, sometimes like in large, large rooms, like towards the back, the black text on the gray code bubble like becomes really, really hard to see. It's really easy to change. But I've never felt the need because I don't pay attention to, you know, things that look pretty or not pretty. That's just not my world. That's why I'm a back end developer. <laughs> uh, Carlicia, did you have one this week? Yes, I want to give a shout out to not a project, but to a person, Frances Campoy. He is leaving Google and uh, I, I know he, he was working for, as a, a developer advocate for 
Google Cloud and also on the Gold team, right? I think he worked in uh, both groups. So I was really sad to see him move on. I don't know why, because he's, I mean, he's been there since I, since I knew of Go. But I think it's going to be, sounds obviously, I trust his decision. <laughs> it's probably a very good uh, transition for him. He's going to be, he, well, I think he is already or soon to be the VP of Developer Relations at SRCD on this course. Source D. Source, source yeah. D. Source D. <laughs> I tried to read, which I never heard of this company before, but they sound really cool. They are awesome, and he's going to be a great fit there. So good luck to Francais, and yeah, hopefully he will stick around. He did. He's done so many things for the community. He went. He went uh, way and beyond his Call of Duty. And just FYI, Source D is not the Society for Research and Child Development. This is a completely different Source D. Thanks for clarifying, Brian. Sure, you bet. <laughs> Very helpful. Jason, Andrew, do you have any good uh, software? Yeah, I uh, have concourse.ci. Uh, it's the CI and CD that we use here on Cloud Foundry heavily. It's just a super valuable tool to help get any commit you want out there quickly. And we run our tests with it, get use it to push to production environment and everything. So it's uh, all written in Go. It's something you could run in your own data center. You could run on your own VM or um yeah it's been a real valuable tool that they've worked real hard on it's not a paid service right you you get the code and run on your servers yeah exactly you can bring it behind you know to an air gap data center if you need to or run it wherever mm. yeah it's uh kind of sweet spot is uh doing pipelines um so uh, it visualizes the pipeline really well and allows you to chain different you know uh, jobs and tasks into different, uh, you know, other jobs and tasks. So, you know, whatever your build artifacts, Docker images, or whatever it may be on the the other end of your pipeline, uh, you can automate all that using Concourse. It's really nice. Oh, that's awesome. Another thing to add to the list of things to play with that I don't have time for. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I had a free software Friday thing as well. Uh, so this is about the coolest thing I know going on in the uh, kind of uh, realm that I work in. Uh, so we, we work a lot in, with metrics and uh, performance measurements. And uh, there's a, a kernel technology called eBPF, uh, which is a virtual machine. It's an actual bytecode that you can write uh, that runs inside the kernel uh, space. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of tooling around like uh, creating and compiling these programs. So GoBPF is the bindings for libbcc, which is a compiler that compiles down to the BPF bytecode. Um, so it allows you to kind of write Go programs. You have to write a little bit of C uh, that gets uh, compiled into the, the kernel, uh, which is the kernel space part. Um, but then the rest of the program can be in Go. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty nice uh, tool to uh, be able to have high performance monitoring of either your user space or your, your kernel. Um, so you can reach out and do K probes, U probes, trace points, things like that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've actually used uh, BPF before too. So I, I didn't see that somebody had done Go bindings. So that's awesome. Yeah, the Python bindings are kind of the uh, reference ones that a lot of people use, but the, the Go ones there, you, uh, one thing you just have to make sure is that the 
uh, version of Go VPF that you are using, uh, you have the uh, appropriate version of libvcc, which is, is a dynamic uh, library. Uh, so you just got to make sure you have the, the compatible version. It's one like hiccup I ran into early on. So mine for today is uh, DEP. So um, we've all kind of talked about DEP and uh, Sam spoke about it at uh, the last GopherCon, but I actually hadn't worked on a project that used it yet until recently. So I definitely want to give all of the people who have put so much effort into that a huge shout out just because it's uh, it's quickly becoming my favorite vendoring tool. Yeah, I've been using DEP too. It's been good. I like it. I've been using DEP a lot and it makes me happy. But you guys look using their Cloud Foundry. Uh, we early on we kind of experimented with that. I think it was before it was uh, you know uh, something that was promoted as like generally usable. Um, so we don't actually use DEP. Uh, we run all of our source code against the latest dependencies, like their their default branches, and then uh, we vendor dependencies using Git submodules. It's kind of a, a legacy technique, but it, it served us well. So it's old school. Yeah, <laughs> respect. All right, so I think we are out of time, but I want to thank uh, everybody for coming on the show and definitely thank you, Jason and Andrew, for, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Is this the first time we've successfully had two people at the same time as guests? Yes. I, yeah, I believe I believe it has I want to say we tried it once and it was a massive fail. <laughs> I don't yeah, remember I us trying. Us. That's why we don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> they did say they were pros, remember? That's true. They did say that. Yeah, but their audio went out in the middle of a call, so I don't know if I'm buying uh, the whole pro thing. I'm, I'm, I'm blaming uh, Skype on that. Okay. Yeah, Skype will take a hit. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jason and Andrew, for coming uh, on. Thanks. 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 This was great. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Um, if you want to be on the show or suggestions for topics or guests, uh, file an issue on github.com slash gotimefm slash ping. And with that, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. All right, that's it for this episode of GoTime. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community in Slack with us. In real time during the shows, head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, Linode, we host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. GoTime is edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Jason King. And I'm Andrew Boydens. And this is GoTime. Okay, we didn't sync up on that one. <laughs> I'm Jason King. And I'm Andrew Boydens. And this is, is GoTime. Okay. How about you just do it? I'm going to signal. I'm going <laughs> to give you the hand signal. And All right. We'll, we'll do it in that. I'm Jason King. And I'm Andrew Boydens. And this is GoTime. Go time. We didn't even sync up on that. <laughs> you just say it.